The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Matthew, in chapter 9, and reading the first eight verses. The first eight verses in the ninth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. When the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. Now, I read the eight verses in order that we may have a clear picture in our minds of the incident recorded here, the healing of this man who was suffering from palsy, what we now call paralysis. I always feel that it's a good thing at the beginning of every year that we should remind ourselves of some of the great fundamentals of the Christian faith. We meet here at all, and I stand in this pulpit because we hold the view that there is nothing in the world tonight that holds out any hope for mankind or for any individual in it apart from this gospel. And that is why I'm never tired of saying that to me the supreme tragedy, greater than any other tragedy whatsoever, is the appalling way and manner in which people still can be so confused as to the nature of this gospel, what it is, what it offers to do, for whom it offers it, and to whom it offers it, and what is its essential nature. And that is why I say that it's good to be going back to the foundations and the first principles from time to time, lest any may be still in a state of confusion. So we began last Sunday night by taking that great statement of the Apostle Paul. It is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Now, here tonight, we are continuing it. Because here we have an incident recorded. It's one of the incidents recorded in these two chapters, in Matthew, chapters 8 and 9. We have a series of incidents. They're grouped together here, immediately at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And they're obviously designed, were designed by Matthew, in order to call our attention to our Lord himself and some of these great principles in connection with his whole mission into this world of time. And here we have a very striking illustration of some of the fundamentals of the Christian gospel and the Christian way of salvation. That is why I'm calling your attention to it. 
And again, I thank God that I am a preacher of a gospel which speaks in some such terms as thee. Here we are, I say, still at the beginning of a new year. In a world full of problems, full of difficulties, full of trials, full of perplexities. A world in which we are more and more conscious of our own smallness, our own insignificance. A world in which we are all more conscious of failure than, any, than of anything else. Failure in our personal lives. The failure of the nations and the statesmen. The whole condition of society and of the world proclaims failure. And I suppose the greatest danger confronting everybody today is the danger of utter hopelessness. Feeling what's the use of anything. Look at the condition. Hopelessness, a sense of despair. Well, now I say, it's a very wonderful thing that we've got a gospel to preach which starts like this. Son, be of good cheer. Son, be encouraged. Now, that's the message of the Christian gospel. It's all summed up there in those words. Here's a perfect epitome of the gospel for you. Son, daughter, be of good cheer. Some people have translated this. Cheer up. Take courage. Take hope. And what we have here, of course, in this incident is the verification of that statement of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's got to say. That's what he's saying tonight. And here he gives proof that it's not just an idle word, not just a general statement of good cheer. No, no, it's based on something solid. It's not like our Christmas greetings or our New Year's greetings that ever come to nothing. Here is one who can substantiate what he says. And he proceeded, as you remember, to do so. Very well. We are looking here at a man who, having met the Lord Jesus Christ, went away of very different men, carried helplessly on a bed, suffering from paralysis. You remember the end of the story. And he arose and departed to his house. A complete transformation. Now, that's the sort of thing this gospel does. That is its message. Now then, let's uh, look at this incident. Let's do it in a very simple manner this evening. Here's a man, I say, who having come to the Lord Jesus Christ, obtained this great blessing. How is it to be obtained? What are the conditions? Do we know this kind of blessing? Do we know this kind of transformation? Have we experienced in a spiritual sense what this man experienced both spiritually and physically? Do we know anything of this order of experience? That's the question. What are the conditions? Well, they're all here, it seems to me. Let me therefore divide the subject this evening under two main general headings. There's a good deal told us in this incident about our approach to Christ. And then we are told what he does. And both are important. Now look at this question of the approach. Let's take this man as an example of a man who's got the blessing. Now what, what do we find about him? Well, here are the things that I find in the approach. Obviously, the man himself and the people who brought him are aware of his need. That's why they came to Christ at all. There wasn't much difficulty, of course, but essentially something physical, paralysis. And they all realized it. And that is why I say they brought him to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm only 
noticing these things in passing this evening. But this is something that is invariable. No man has ever become a Christian without knowing his need. It's the man who's never known his need who isn't a Christian. The self-satisfied person. The person who feels that everything's all right. He doesn't need anything. He's not a sinner. He's not aware of failure. Why should he come? It's the self-satisfied. We're always outside. Invariably, you find that all the people who were ever blessed by the Lord Jesus Christ and the subsequent history of the church bears its eloquent testimony to this same point. They've always been people who realized their need, their desperate need. Are you aware of your need, my friend? Well, there it is. Let me hurry to the second thing. The one thing to do when you do become aware of the need is to go to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, it's interesting here. Here was a man who was brought by his friends. They carried him, you see. They brought him, a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And the account of this same incident in Mark is interesting. It gives us certain details which we are not given here. Listen to it. Uh, straightway many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them no not so much as about the door and he preached the word unto them and they come unto him bringing one sick of the palsy which was born of four and when they could not come nigh unto him for the press for the crowd pressing upon him they uncovered the roof where he was and when they had broken it up they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay now that's exactly what happened now, I say, here's the interesting thing, that uh, these men, these four, realized that the thing to do with this man, this friend of theirs, was to take them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no doubt but that the man himself had requested this. We are told here when the Lord observed their faith. It isn't only the faith of the four men, it's the faith of the man himself. They exercised this faith together. And the thing that they realized was the importance of going to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I've just reminded you of the trouble which they took in order to do that. They wouldn't be put off. They said, we must get to him. They were not content with talking to people on the outskirts of the crowd. They'd not be satisfied with the disciple. They must get at the Lord himself. They can't get in because of the crowd. Very well, they said. We're going to get in some other way. So they went onto the roof and tore it open. And they let the men down through the hole that they'd made into the roof of the house. Now here is a most important principle. There's nothing half-hearted about these people. They're insisting upon getting into touch and into contact with him. They will not be put off. There's an element almost of desperation here. Oh, I mustn't stay with these preliminary points. But, my dear friend, had you realized that the position of your soul is a desperate one? Nobody can read this Bible, especially the New Testament, properly without recognizing that there's always a note of urgency here. The time seems to be short. You noticed it in that reading at the beginning, knowing the terror of the Lord. We persuade men we must all appear before the judgment throne of Christ and give an account of the deeds done in the body. The Bible always pictures life as a journey. We are but strangers and pilgrims, travelers and sojourners, 
simply passing through this world once, never to come back again, and we settle our fate by this one visit, this one journey, and therefore this urgency. This matter must be settled. It's everywhere. Our Lord himself was constantly urging this very note. And I say you find it elsewhere, everywhere in the New Testament. It's a desperate matter. If this has always been true, surely it's unusually true at this present hour, with the world as it is and all the possibilities that are round and about us. My dear friend, had you realized the urgency of this whole matter of your soul and its salvation? Have you become desperate about this? Have you really taken these desperate efforts in order to get face to face with Jesus Christ? Or are you still uh, sitting back in your armchair having a discussion about religion? Reading books, reading articles, listening to people denouncing it on the wireless. Is that it? Is it a dilettante approach? Well, if it is, Take it from me, you'll never know him like that. You'll never receive his blessing. There's always a note of desperation about these people. They realize that something must be done, so they insist upon coming face to face with him. Have you come to that point? Are you up and doing? Are you really serious? Are you really concerned about yourself and about your eternal destiny? This is the big problem of this age. Not so much what happens to us in this life. We may not be here much longer. We don't know. But what is to be our eternal destiny? That's the question. And the moment you face that, you feel that the whole situation is a desperate one. Well, then I move on to my third general point about this approach, which is this. That we are here, I say once more, to announce that there is a hope in him when everything else has failed. It's not difficult to read between the lines here. Why this desperation in seeking the help that Jesus Christ could give? Well, obviously, they tried everything else. The man suffers from palsy, paralysis. And they had their physicians at that time. They called them by different names. Their whole method was different. doesn't matter. They were the doctors of that time. And clearly, everything like that had been tried. These people had done what any ordinary common sense person would do. All the remedies, all the medicaments had been tried, but they'd all failed. And then they began to hear about this person, this Jesus of Nazareth. And they said, we must try him. Here's the last resort. Everything else has failed. The man's as paralyzed as he always was, in spite of every other treatment. At last, shall we try this man? Here there seems to be a hope. So they rushed to him, and in desperation, they break open the ceiling in order that the men can be confronted by this law. And here is the great and the grand central proclamation of this gospel this evening. Here there is hope for the hopeless. Here there is help for the helpless. Now this is to me a most glorious thing. I'm ever conscious of it standing in this pulpit. I don't care if the blackest and the vilest sinner in London tonight is in this congregation. I hold out hope to him. I hold out the same hope to her. There is no limit here. There's a limit to medical knowledge. There's a limit to psychological knowledge. There's a limit to social... There's a limit to everything. But there's no limit here. 
when everything else has failed, here is one who can still succeed. There is no human being that has sinned beyond the bounds of redemption and salvation in Christ Jesus. None. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Now this, I say, is a very wonderful thing. I may be speaking to somebody tonight who has come in here as a last desperate move. There are many such people in the world. There are men and women who have come to the end of their tether. That's why people commit suicide. They feel they've failed. They feel they're no good. They feel they're hopeless. That nobody wants them. Nobody cares about them. Nobody can help them. There are many such people in this world. It's not surprising. Well, if you are one of them in this congregation tonight, listen. Son, daughter, be of good cheer. There is hope here for the hopeless. There is help here even for the most helpless. Here it is. It's on the very surface of this. That's why they tried him. The last resort. The last possibility. There he is. And thank God, blessed be the name of God, that in a world even as this is tonight, this message still is true. And it is my privilege to hold it up before you. And that brings me to my last general point about this matter of the approach. Indeed, I've been repeating it more or less constantly. As I've been going along, it is to remind you again of what he says to all such. And I want to ask my question therefore once more. Has he said it to you? Have you heard this Son of God saying, Son, daughter, be of good cheer? Do you know of this blessed hope? Have you received this message? Very well. This brings us to the essence of our matter this evening, which is this. What is it that is absolutely essential in order that this may happen to us? We've realized that there are certain things that are absolutely essential as preliminaries. Very well. Now then, we are, as it were, standing face to face with him. That's the meaning of coming to a service like this. You don't come here to listen to me. You don't come here to listen to what I've got to say. I don't stand here to give you an account of what I think or say. I'm here to expound this. I'm here to hold you face to face with Jesus Christ. I'm like these four men. That's my whole business, is to bring you to him. God forbid that I should ever detain anybody myself. No, no, I'm just one of these people who's tearing open the roof in order that you may come to him. That's my business. I have to be rather violent at times. When you're smashing roofs, you see, it's essential. That's what I'm for. I'm just here to see that you do come into contact with him and that you're face to face. There you are. I've brought you there. Now then, I say, what are the conditions? Well, here is the absolute condition. To be blessed by him and to have the experience that this man had, we have got to submit ourselves utterly and completely and entirely to his method. His method. Here, of course, is the special message of this particular incident. Let me show you what I mean by that. Let me put it in the, number of, in the form of a number of propositions. Let's watch the Lord Jesus Christ dealing with this man. This is how he always deals with everybody. This is universal. 
This is how he treats any soul that approaches him. And we've got to submit to it. He won't do it, deal with us in any other way. He's got his own method and he will not vary it. I trust I'm making that plain and clear. If you come to argue with him, well, you'll go out as you came in. You've got to submit to him. What is his method? Well, here's the first thing. He always leads us to the real source of our troubles. That's the thing that stands out here above everything else. The extraordinary diagnosis he makes. So different from what they thought. What do I mean? Well, haven't you been surprised as you've read this incident or as you listened to my reading of it tonight? Here's the story. Behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. But who's been talking about sins? Who's been mentioning sins? Why did they bring this man to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, they brought him to him because of the palsy. But our Lord doesn't say a word about the palsy at the beginning. He says, thy sins be forgiven. Haven't you been amazed at that? Hasn't that come to you as a matter of utter astonishment? He doesn't seem to be paying any attention to them. He doesn't seem to be interested in what they're interested in. But he immediately fastens onto the thing that he is interested in. Now, here, of course, is the great central principle about this whole matter of the Christian salvation. You and I think that we know our cause, the cause of our troubles. We think we know what we need. And we go to Jesus Christ and we turn to God wanting what we think is the satisfaction of our need. There are many people in this world who never pray at all until they get into trouble, some need, and they begin to pray. And they pray about this one thing. And they're very surprised very often because they don't seem to get an answer. That's because they don't know the method. You see, these people bring him palsy, paralysis. They want healing. But he talks about, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, how do you explain this? How do you understand it? Well, let me put it down as a principle. The difference between our approach to the whole problem of the world and our own personal problem and the approach of the Son of God to the problem of the world and our individual problems, the difference is this. We are always interested in symptoms. And he is always interested in the disease. That is why you find this common principle in all his teaching and in all his miracles. It's always here, invariably. People come for this reason and that reason and the other, and then he seems to cut right through it all. He reads the back of their minds. He interposes his questions. Haven't you noticed that? So constantly it happens. But this is absolutely essential to an understanding of the Christian way of salvation. The world tonight is talking and writing about the various symptoms. Societies come into being, protests are made, people argue with one another, interviewed on the television and on the wire. The problem of the world, the symptoms, 
This has got to be put right now, says the other, it's that. One says it's a purely economic problem. You solve that and everything will be all right. It's economics that always lead ultimately to war. That's the Marxist view of it all, this dialectical materialism. And if only you could solve that, everybody would be at peace. That's the communist view tonight, if you could only do away with capitalism. And you have this kind of proletariat all over the world. You'd never have another war. Purely economic problem. Others say that it's something else... Everybody's talking about these things and the psychologists come in and people say now this is the idea and they start a movement about it. But the world goes from bad to worse. Why? Well, because they're all dealing with symptoms and they've never realized the true nature of the disease. But that's never true of our Lord. Here he is, paralyzed. Heal him. Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins are forgiven thee. Why does he do this? Now then, let's put it to you in the form of a, a religious principle, a doctrine, a theological principle. You've got to grasp it. This is theology. This is an understanding of God and his way of saving men. Here's the principle. Our Lord, you see, is interested in the thing that produces the condition. And he directs attention to that rather than to the mere condition. Now, there is very little doubt, it seems to me, that in this particular case, the man's trouble was probably due to some sin in his former life. I can't prove that. It's possible. You know, sometimes men suffer from paralysis because of something they've done. There are certain diseases that can paralyze men. And they're diseases that are the direct outcome and result of sin. I believe this was such a case. That this man had sinned earlier in his life and the result of his sin was paralysis. Very well. Now let's be clear about this. I am not teaching, let's be clear. I am not saying that always when people are ill, paralyzed or suffering from diseases, that it is always the immediate and direct outcome of sin. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it probably was in this case, as I understand it, and most commentators are agreed about that. And therefore, obviously, our Lord goes to the cause rather than to the one of the results or the manifestation. He's interested in the disease and not merely in the symptom which is an expression of the disease. As if to say, no, no, what you need, you know, is not that the symptom be dealt with, but that the thing that gives rise to it be eradicated, put right. Disease. That's where he goes. Well, there it is in this particular case. But, whether that's true or not, this is the great central principle of the whole of the Bible. You see, the Bible is a great big book, but in a sense it's only got one message. And its message is this. That all our troubles in life, individually and collectively, ultimately, are due to sin. Now I'm saying all troubles. I'm even venturing to say this, that in the last and the ultimate analysis, even disease of any shape or form is the result of sin. I make bold to assert that were it not that sin had come into the world, there would never have been uh, something like influenza. I'm saying that in order that you may understand this. I am not here to teach that if a man's got influenza and is at home tonight, it's because he's committed a sin. No, no. But I'm saying this, that there would never have been influenza at all, were it not that man sinned. 
God made a perfect world. And there was no disease in it. And there was no disease in it because there was no sin in it. There need never have been death. It is man's sin that introduced death. It introduced disease causing death. It introduced thorns and briars and all the things that make life uncomfortable and difficult. All the problems are ultimately to be traced back to sin. Now that's what our Lord is teaching here. Son, be of good cheer. Thy sin be forgiven thee. He is indicating here that the whole essential trouble is due to sin. Well, now, let's put it once more and remind ourselves of it. Not only at the beginning of this new year, but as we contemplate the whole state of the universe at this moment. And that is why I say again, I'm proud of being a preacher of the gospel. I don't want to say a word against the politicians. You've got to have them in a world like this. You need government. You've got to have human arrangements. God has ordained the powers that be. I'm not criticizing them. But I do thank God for my office as a little preacher of the gospel this evening. Why? Well, because when you put everything else by the side of this, how superficial it is. That's not being unkind to it or disrespectful. Put the greatest speeches of the greatest statesmen by the side of this. How superficial it is. Oh, the statesman can wax eloquent and talk about the human race being elevated to some great high, broad table land. They did it in the last war. They did it after the first war. They talk about wars to end wars. The Parliament of Men, the Federation of the World, these magnificent oratorical efforts. But they come to nothing. And they're bound to come to nothing. It's also superficial. You see, they've never dealt with this problem of sin. They don't recognize it. They're not aware of it even. And it's not surprising as a result that the world is as it is. But here our Lord, you see, looks beyond the paralysis. Thy sins be forgiven thee. The thing that's caused your paralysis is the thing I'm going to deal with. In other words, let me put it like this, my dear friend. I don't care what your particular worry is. Probably if we all stated... Our greatest troubles one by one in this service tonight, we'd find that there'd be a great variety on the surface. Are you disappointed? Are you unhappy? Have you got a broken or a bleeding heart? What is it that's troubling you? What's it that's getting you down? Well, I'm here to say this. I don't care what it is in particular. I can tell you the fundamental cause of it all. All our troubles emanate from our wrong relationship to God. That's the trouble. Because we are not in the right relationship to him, everything goes wrong. Sin is the cause of all our varied ills, whatever form they may chance to take. The greatest need of the whole world tonight is not the dealing with this particular symptom that brings us to Christ. It's his diagnosis. It is that we be reconciled to God. There's only one way of true happiness. There is only one way of truly living life. There is only one secret of real and lasting joy and solid treasures. And that is to be blessed of God. 
to be rightly related to him, to have his benediction upon our lives, to live under the smile of his face. That's life. That's life as it is meant to be and as it can be. That's man's greatest need. Not what you and I think. Oh, we think if only we could have a great disarmament conference and all the nations would abolish, wouldn't it be wonderful? No threat of war, taxes would come down, wouldn't we have a wonderful time? You wouldn't, you know. If you could abolish war and bring your taxes down to practically nothing, life would still be miserable. There'd still be jealousy and envy and malice and bitterness and hatred and rivalry and ambition. Oh, these things that bring us down, they'd still be there. Temptation, evil, sin, the flesh, the world, the devil, they'd all be there still and life would still be a misery. Ah, you see how superficial we are. My dear friend, it doesn't matter what your particular trouble is, your trouble mind, the problem of the whole world, of the whole human race is that we are alienated from God. We've fallen away from our Maker and our Father. We're not being blessed by Him. Our first need is what? Well, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation unto God, a restoration of the relationship that obtained originally between God and the first man. So that our Lord speaks. Paralytic. Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. You see, this is our Lord's method. He cuts through everything and gets right to the one central cause of all our ills, sin. But then in the second place, he goes on to claim that he has the authority to deal with that. And this is a thing that comes out uh, so surprisingly in this incident. Now, let's be clear about the translation here. It's very important. I'm reading the authorized version, and it says, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. In a way, it's right, as long as you and I are clear as to the content of the word forgive. Now, this amplified New Testament, which is a very good translation, it's particularly good on this matter. Listen, this is how it puts it. Son... Be encouraged. Your sins are forgiven and the penalty remitted. Now, that's not imagination. That's not reading into it. That is based upon scholarship and a true understanding of the meaning of the word forgiven. That translation very rightly gives a little footnote. And it says that it's basing its translation upon the great lexicon of grim and fair. One of the greatest authorities on this matter. Now then, this isn't my idea. This, isn't, this is pure bit of Greek scholarship. Son, be encouraged. Your sins are forgiven and the penalty remitted. What does this mean? Well, now, if, if you don't grasp that, you can't understand the incident. Our Lord, you remember, repeats this, that he may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy. Why is this so important? Well, for this reason. Our Lord doesn't merely turn to this man and say, My dear friend, God in his love is ready to forgive sins. He didn't say that. He said, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins are forgiven and the penalty remitted. What a difference. 
In other words, he is not just making a general statement, I say, to the effect that God is a God of love and that therefore he is ready to forgive us. No, no. Our Lord goes well beyond that. He claims that he himself has got the power to forgive sins and to remit the penalty. And it was because of that that these Pharisees and scribes objected to it. Did you notice this? And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. Now, they wouldn't have said that if, I, if he had but said that God was the God of love and that he was ready to forgive. They would never have charged him with blasphemy for saying that. But they charged him with blasphemy. Why? Well, they understood the meaning of what he said. They said there's only one who can remit sin. There is only one who has authority to remit the penalty that sins deserve. That's God. This man says he can do it. He's blaspheming. He's making himself equal to God. He's arrogating unto himself the prerogative that belongs to God and to God alone. They saw the point, and they were quite right. That is exactly what he was claiming. Our Lord, I say again, is not merely making a general statement about the love of God, and this is so important, he goes beyond. He says that the whole matter of the remission of sins the removal of the penalty of the guilt of sins is something that is in his hands. And that is why I say my business is to bring you to Christ. If the main problem of man is sin and the need of forgiveness, well then there's only one who can deal with it. There's nobody else. And it is this Son of God. And this is what he offers this evening. It's not a mere vague general statement, I say, to the effect that God will overlook sin because he's a God of love. No, no. It says this, that God is a holy and a just God also, and a righteous God. And that he's given his law which condemns sin. And that there's only one way whereby sin can be dealt with, and that is that this law be satisfied. Here's the penalty of the law. How can that be remitted? There's only one way. It must be carried out. And what our Lord was really saying here was this, that he'd come in order to do that. He is the one who can talk about the remission of the penalty of sin. Not just saying God's prepared to wink at sin and pretend he hasn't seen it. No, no. God must remain God and a righteous God. And sin is evil and punishable and its punishment is death. And this punishment must somehow be dealt with. It has been dealt with. I'm the one. He says, I have power to remit the penalty of sin. Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And the penalty remitted. Are we clear about this, my friends? That you can be absolutely assured that your sins are forgiven. If you really understand this person and what he's saying, very well, that brings me to my third and my last point, which is this one. He not only says that he can do this, he gives proof that he can. He knows he's challenged. The scribes say this man's blaspheming. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? You see, they hadn't said it openly, they'd thought it. They said within themselves, this man blasphemeth. Yes, but they're dealing with somebody here who can read their thoughts. He knows exactly what's passing in their minds. Never forget that about him, my dear friend. You can't play fast and loose with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He knows all about you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your imaginations. He knows everything. Nothing is hidden from him. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing us under even the joints and spirit and soul and marrow. Nothing is hidden from him. He read their minds. And then he addressed them in terms of what they were thinking. And this is what he said. Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. Which he said, Do you think is the easier thing for me to do? Which indeed is the easier thing in and of itself, to say to a man, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say to this paralytic, Rise up and walk. Which is the easier? He puts the question like that in order to make a statement. The statement is this, I can do both. And I'm going to give you proof that I can do both. You won't believe me when I say that I have authority and power to forgive sins. Well, perhaps you'll believe me if I show you that I've got the power. I'll make this man stand up. So he said to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed and go to thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now then, here is one who not only claims he's got the authority, he'll give you proof that he's got it. I find so many people are not Christian today, they say, how can I know this is true? What authority have you for saying what you're saying? What authority can I have for knowing that this message is true? I do want forgiveness of sins. I do want to be reconciled to God. I want to be blessed of God. I want to be delivered. I want a new life. I want to be set free. But how do I know that this is true? It's this old question of authority, and our Lord deals with it. This, this, these are the answers he gives. That you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Well, there's proof number one. He calls himself the Son of Man. Son of Man. You see, you must believe in the deity of the Son of God. There's no religion, no Christian faith, if this isn't the unique person that he claims to be. He doesn't say, I'm a man. The Son of Man! Oh, we go back to where we were last Sunday night. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world. You see, this isn't a Socrates, it isn't a Plato, it isn't a Mohammed, it isn't a Buddha, it isn't a Confucius. Who's this? Son of God, Son of Man, the Man, the unique person. Here's your authority. You read these four Gospels and you find he claims it everywhere. He is not just a man amongst men. This is God visiting and redeeming his people. This is the great mystery and message of the Incarnation. This is God coming in the flesh. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Son of Man, His unique authority depends upon the uniqueness of His person. Only God can remit sins. Yes, He says, I do so because I am God. I am God the Son. This is the very center of our message. That this is the eternal Son of God incarnate. Proof number one. Proof number two. He says that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He says to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thine house. And he arose and went into his house. Oh, the manifestation of his power. 
That was the purpose of all the miracles that he ever wrought, ultimately, was just to show who he was. Of course, at the same time, he did kindness to people. He relieved a great deal of suffering, yes, but you know, the object of every miracle was just to attest his person. John, very rightly in his gospel, always refers to the miracles as signs, signs, signs of authority, signs as to who he is. Who is this that worketh miracles? You remember we are told about some people, they came very critically to our Lord, but they had to make this confession. They said, John did no miracles, but everything he said about this man is true. Our Lord on one occasion challenged those Pharisees and scribes. He says, even if you don't believe my words, believe my works. How do you explain them? Look at it. John the Baptist, poor John the Baptist, the forerunner. There he is. He's been in prison for six months. And he's an ill and a sick man in prison life as it was in those days. And he's got enemies encouraging him to think the wrong thing. And he was beginning to wonder whether this Jesus was the Christ after all. So he sends his two messengers asking the famous question. Art thou he that should come? Or do we look for another? Are you the Son of God, the Messiah? Or have we got to wait for somebody else to come? You remember the answer our Lord sent back? The blind go back and tell John again the things that ye do see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf are made to hear. The dead are raised, and unto the poor is the gospel preached. The sign, the miracles, that you may know that I've got the authority, that I'm not a blasphemer. I'll prove to you that I'm God. I'll do something that no man can do. He works the miracle. And all the miracles are designed to the same end and to bring out the same truth. Then over and above that, you see, he is given proof later on of his authority. What is it? Well, his death upon the cross. Peter pulls out a sword to try to save him, put it back, he says, I've come in order to die. How can all righteousness be fulfilled if I don't die? Don't protect me. Don't you know, he says, I could command twelve legions of angels and be wafted to heaven. No, no. But how could I fulfill righteousness if I did that? I've come to die. Here's his authority. What's it mean? It means this. He has the right to remit the penalty of sins. Because he came into the world to take them upon himself. He doesn't merely announce that God forgives. No, no, he's the one who makes the way of forgiveness. God was in Christ, in Christ in his life, in his death, burial, resurrection. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. It's the only way. So he says, I've got the authority. And he has the authority to do it because he takes these sins, takes them on himself, bears the guilt, bears the unrighteousness, bears the punishment by dying on the cross. By giving his life a ransom for many. This is his authority. Oh yes, you say, but he died and was buried in a grave. I agree, my friend, but don't stop at that. He arose again. He burst asunder the bends of death. He arose triumphant o'er the grave. And in his resurrection he is proclaiming that he has dealt with the guilt of sins and has been able thus to get the remission. God has punished them, but still he rises. Even the grave can't hold him. Why? Well, he's borne it all and satisfied everything. Sin is remitted. His authority is in his resurrection. 
It declares that he is the son of God with power. According to the spirit of holiness. Says the apostle Paul in Romans 1.4. Very well my dear friends. There is his authority. Do you see it? Son of men. Son of God. Proving it. Never man spake like this man. Never did man do works such as he did. Are you too clever to believe in miracles? Well, very well, if you are, so long you'll remain paralyzed. This is the Son of God on earth. I expect the unusual. I get the unusual. That's why I must believe this. I have nothing if I don't accept this evidence. Here is my evidence. Here's my authority. It's his authority. And I accept his authority. Son of man, miracles. There I see him staggering up Golgotha. What's he doing? Oh, bearing the sins of men. I see him sweating in the garden before that. What's he doing? Struggling with this problem of my sins, my guilt upon him. He's, this is a part of the remission. He's dealing with it. And as I see him expiring, I see there that sin is being dealt with in a lawful manner. It's being punished. And my sin having been punished in him, I am offered free pardon and forgiveness. And I can receive it gladly and joyfully. For I see that God has honored his own law. He's kept his own word. He's declared himself to be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Very well, that's, there it is, my last word to you is obvious. What have you got to do then, my friend, if you've come into this place burdened, paralyzed in some shape or form? Well, you see, you've got nothing to do except what this man did. Our Lord turned to the man and said, Arise, take up thy bed and go into thine house. And the man who was completely paralyzed arose and departed to his house. What happened? Oh, well, he just listened, you see, and he obeyed. When he looked into the face of the Son of God and heard him saying, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee, he believed him. So when he said to him, rise up, go to your house, immediately rose up. He didn't stop to think, he didn't stop to argue. He just heard the command and he believed and rose, found he could do it. He didn't know before he could, but his strength had been infused into him. Life had been given him. He didn't know, he just heard the command, he obeyed. And that's all that you and I have got to do, nothing else. Do you notice the emphasis on faith in this incident? I read here in verse 2, and Jesus seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer. We get it again there, in that seventh verse, in the action of the man. And he arose and departed to his house. You see, it comes to this, therefore, doesn't it? You've come to the Son of God this evening. And just as you are, what he says to you is this, son, daughter, be of good cheer. Be encouraged. Listen to me. Your troubles are due to the fact that you're a sinner in the sight of God. 
and your one great central need is to have forgiveness of sins, to be reconciled to God, and then God will bless you. And everything will be different. You'll become a new man and you'll start living a new life. But without forgiveness, nothing can happen to you. You must be forgiven. Paralysis and so on will be dealt with. You start with forgiveness, the cause of the paralysis. Now don't think of anything else at this moment but the need of forgiveness. Are you prepared to accept that? Are you prepared to say that your troubles are not due to other people? Not due to your economic circumstances. Not due to this, that or the other. Your troubles are due to the fact that you yourself are a sinner. You're an an enemy of God. You're a rebel against God. You're in the wrong relationship. Are you prepared to accept his statement? That's where you begin. If you don't come there, you'll get nothing. There are people trying to extract this, that and the other out of Christianity. It can't be done. Christianity only works in Christ's way. And he starts always at this point. The sin that is the ultimate cause of every... The first need is the need of forgiveness. And he says, right, if you believe that, believe this. I can give you absolute remission here and now. I've borne your penalty. I've died your death. I've taken the whole punishment myself. And I offer you freely, without you doing anything at all, perfect pardon. Absolute wiping out of all your past sins. Reconciliation with God. And the beginning of a new life. Son, daughter, doesn't matter what your condition. You're a helpless paralytic. You're so perilous that you've had four people to carry you in here. You've lost your willpower years ago. You've so sinned that you can't even think straight. You're in the gutters. You're in the depths. Doesn't matter. I care not what you are. I care not how you're clad. I care not what your conditions. I care not what your past history is. Son, daughter, be of good cheer. Thy sins are forgiven thee. And the penalty remitted. Do you believe him? That's his message. That's what he's saying. He says, get right here. Then you're right with God. And then you'll find that the other things will be dealt with one by one. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things shall be added unto you. But you'll never get them unless you get this first. Son, daughter, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee, and the penalty remitted. And having received it, rise up out of the old life you've been living, and begin to walk after Christ in a life that will lead you to God and the glories of heaven and eternal bliss. Amen.